Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading today comes from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." And then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. All right. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. It's good to see everybody. All right. Second scripture readings from Acts 15. We're going to do verses 13 and 19 to 21. After they finished speaking, and this is actually after a very long section that there's all this stuff. I just got rid of all that. We was jumped to the end. <laughs> James replied, my brothers, listen to me. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles. What are Gentiles, by the way? Non-Jews. Non-Jews. Important for the future. Who are turning to God, but we should write to them to... Ab- to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city, for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. So, as you all know, we are, well, many of you do, if you weren't here last week, we are doing a new sermon series called Church and State, The Rise of Early Christianity. And this series, it picks up where we left off two years ago with our Mark series. And we are going to be studying the history of the early church through the documents that we have in the New Testament. So this series... It has four different parts to it. You can see those parts down here at the bottom. We're going to be dealing with the first part that goes from 30 to 70 AD, and that's going to last us from now all the way through the beginning of Advent. So last week, we talked about the aftermath of Jesus' death, and what we discussed is that something amazingly profound happened to Jesus' followers. Exactly what happened is hard to nail down. But what we know is that they say that they had an experience of Jesus coming back to life. And so they are compelled at this point that they want to continue Jesus' movement after his death. So the disciples, they make a decision, right? They say, okay, 
We're going to keep Jesus' movement alive. The question is, exactly how are we going to do that? What are you going to do? Are you going to go out and tell the people around you what you believe to be true about Jesus? Is that what you all would do? Probably, right? But what exactly do you say? And how do you say it? Do you go up to some random stranger on the street and you say, hey, I just want to tell you, so I was following this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, around for the last three years. Really amazing guy, solid person. I just want you to know that. And we thought he had some very profound teachings. He was a healer. And oh yeah, we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was going to be the new king of Israel. But then things kind of got all messed up because he was arrested by the Roman government and he was convicted of treason and then he was crucified. And I know what you're thinking, that's bad. But there's a silver lining in all of this, which is that we saw him just a few days ago. He kind of just appeared out of nowhere. And I don't understand why you're walking away from me. I'm trying to tell you that he's back from the dead. He's still alive. People would think you were crazy, right? And even if you could convince somebody to hear you out, more than likely, they're not going to believe you. So the disciples are in kind of a tough situation, aren't they? They're they're trying to sell something that most people don't want to buy. And their leader's not around anymore to tell them what to do. And it's not like Jesus left them with a business plan. They're on their own. They've got to figure it out for themselves. Well, thankfully, we know from a few details in the New Testament what the game plan was that they eventually developed following Jesus' death and resurrection. And this detail is super important. You need to hold on to this because it's going to be very, very crucial to what we're talking about over the next several months, which is that Jesus and his disciples, they are Jewish. Now, most Christians assume that following all Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus' disciples, they went out and they formed an entirely new religion. They were like, you know what, we're just going to do our own thing. That is not what happened. So following Jesus' death and resurrection, which for round numbers we're going to say happens in 30 AD. Uh, Who knows if that's right or wrong. It's just nice. It's an easy one that we can say. So 30 AD, they end up going back to the towns and villages that they came from. And they start preaching about who Jesus is. They start telling everybody about Jesus and what they saw in the villages and in the synagogues. So they get back there. And for instance, let's just take Peter as an example. So Peter, do you all remember where he's from? He's from a town called Capernaum. Now Capernaum, he goes back there and he goes into the synagogue and he starts preaching. Now archaeologists, they have done digs of ancient Capernaum. And they found two buildings that are very, very interesting. The first building they found was a synagogue that dates back to the 4th or 5th century. This is the synagogue. Actually, a really beautiful synagogue. Now, the 4th or 5th century, that's a little bit later than Peter and what we're talking about, right? But they did a further excavation, and underneath that, they found a foundation of basalt. And some some archaeologists have speculated that maybe... That is the foundation of the original synagogue in Capernaum. So, what this means is that maybe this is the site, maybe not the actual building, but the site where Peter would have gone back to to tell the people in the town about Jesus in that synagogue. The second building they found was a house. 
Now, this house, go ahead and jump to the house. You can see it that way. So this is the house. Now, this house that they found, it doesn't look like much, but they got in there, and they found in the plaster of this ancient house an inscription in the wall referring to Jesus as Lord and Christ. It's written in Syriac, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. They also found, even more important than that, first century fish hooks in the actual house. And as we know from tradition, according to the Gospels, right, Peter was known as a, a fisherman. Now, tradition has held that this house belonged to Peter. That's what people have said. And the reason they say that is because it's really close to the synagogue and the town. Now, whether it did or did not belong to Peter is actually far less important than the fact that what this tells us <laughs> is that Jesus' movement had a presence in the town of Capernaum, and that people were promoting his cause. That's what it tells us. So there's truth in what we're reading about within the gospel narrative. Okay, now I want you to do me a favor. I want you to imagine the disciples for a second in your mind. You don't have to close your eyes, but just imagine them. Generally speaking, we imagine them as a group, a team, right? Okay, and we imagine that because these guys spent the last three years kind of wandering around with Jesus, following everywhere he went. Well, the fact is, following Jesus' death, all of these guys, they would have headed back to their individual towns. Because according to the Gospels, they come from all over Galilee. So this is a map of Galilee, this particular area. So... They're heading back to their particular towns, right? And you have Peter, he, ha he and his brother Andrew, they head back to Capernaum, which is right up there. That's where that's located on this map. And then you have another guy, let's just say Bartholomew, he heads back to the town of Cana. So he's over here. So all these guys, they're heading back home to their particular towns. They're going back to their families because you have to realize these guys, even though they're quite young, they're probably teenagers or at best in their early 20s. They all are married. They all have children. And so they go back to their towns and you have to realize they're going to start telling people about Jesus, but they don't have anything written down. It's not like there's a New Testament at this point that they can just hand them and say, hey, read this. And by the way, there was a 96% illiteracy rate in this area of Galilee. So even if they did have something to hand them, they couldn't have read it anyway. So they go back to this area, to their towns, and everybody's just telling the town what they saw. And of course, you all know that when we see the same thing, we see it through very different eyes. So what this tells us, right, is that from the beginning, something's happening here. Everybody's putting their own spin on it. The way that one disciple might have witnessed Jesus' resurrection is going to be very different from the way another disciple witnessed Jesus' resurrection. And the way that one person remembers Jesus' teachings, what stuck out to that person is going to be different from what stuck out to another person. So everybody goes back, and everybody starts telling them their own version of things. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that literally from day one, Jesus' message was not consistent. It was coming from different people's mouths, from what they thought to be true. But that's the exact opposite of what I just read to you this morning in the book of Acts. The book of Acts 
it says that it was very consistent. Now I want to take a second and tell you just a little bit about the book of Acts because you need to know about its history if you're going to understand why it's important. And we're going to talk about it a couple times in the next few sermons. So the book of Acts was written by the same author who wrote the book or the gospel of Luke. And they're often referred together. They're referred to as Luke-Acts, kind of as a pair. Now, we don't actually know who wrote the Gospel of Luke. We assume it's Luke, but we don't know for sure. So, we're going to just, for ease of use, we're going to say it's Luke. Okay, are we cool with that? All right. So, Luke writes the Gospel, which we all know what that is. That's a narrative of Jesus' life. But then he does something unique. He writes this book called Acts, which is a narrative of the early church. It's a narrative of the early church, only one of its kind in the New Testament. And it was written earliest around 85 AD. Now, why is that important? When did I tell you that Jesus was crucified? Around numbers? 30. 30. That's 55 years later. 55 years later. So Acts is not a first-hand account of what happened in the early church. And we know this because what Acts says is actually contradicted by other documents we have in the New Testament. So for instance, what, were, what was that thing in Acts talking about this morning? It was talking about a debate that was being had in the early church over whether Gentiles, who are what? Non-Jews, should first have to convert to Judaism. So the question they're asking is, if you're a guy, do you have to get circumcised first and then start following kosher law? It's a very orderly discussion. Everybody says, this is what I think. And then they say, okay, here's our decision. And they move forward, right? Which is like no church committee meeting ever, right? Like, (laughs) that's definitely not how it works. (laughs) So we know from other documents in the New Testament that, in fact, that's not how it went. It was not orderly at all. This was a knockdown, dragout fight. In fact, they may have never worked this out. And the reason why is because everybody thought they were right. And everybody was lobbing the argument back and forth. Well, I knew Jesus, so therefore I know what he would want us to do. So what this tells us is that Acts, as a book, this little argument that we read, it's fabricated. But it also tells us something very interesting that I think is super important, which is it talks about the leadership hierarchy in the church. So the first person to speak to this issue is Peter. He talks about it for a little bit. Then the second person who stands up is Paul, and then he's supported by his friend Barnabas. And then the third person to stand up is what we read this morning from James. Now James, right, he gets up. Who is James? James is Jesus' brother. Hear that, Jesus' brother, okay? That's very important that you hear that. This is a guy who grew up from the time he was little with Jesus. And James, he gets up there and he says, okay, guys, I've heard what everybody has to say, and here's the decision. Here's what we're going to do. So what is Acts saying? Luke is saying in Acts, who's the big cheese? James. He's the guy in charge. He's the guy leading the church. He's the guy making all the decisions. But who here is in Catholic, ex-Catholic, something like that? Who do they say, who does the Catholic church say is the leader of the church, the leader of the early church? Who was it? Peter. Right? Don't they even go back and say that Peter is the first pope? And we read that this morning. We actually read the verse where they get that from. In this verse, it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. 
and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So, we have a little bit of a conundrum here. <laughs> Who's in charge? So, is it, as Luke says, is it James, Jesus' brother? Or is it what Matthew says? Is it Peter? Is he the head of the church? Well, if you do a little more digging into the New Testament, what you discover is that Luke is actually correct. That it was James. That James was the head of the church. Now, I find this to be kind of interesting. Because what's interesting about James being the head of the church is that this guy, if you go back and you scour the Gospels, he doesn't appear anywhere in the Gospels. Like with Jesus' life and Jesus' movement. In fact, the only time he kind of shows up is when his family, Jesus' family in the Gospel of Mark, they come out and they try to stop Jesus because they think he's crazy. So this raises an interesting question, right? How does James go from being a nobody to all of a sudden becoming the head of the church? And the truth is, we don't know. But there's one little detail, one small detail in the New Testament that might give us some understanding of how this happened. And it's in the scripture that we read last week from Paul in his letter to 1 Corinthians where he talks about Jesus' resurrection appearances. This is what he says. He says, Jesus appeared to Cephas, who is who's Cephas, by the way? That's Peter. That's his other name. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Do you see the detail? He says, then he appeared to James. So what he's saying is, is that James, Jesus' brother, has his own independent resurrection experience. So either one of two things is happening. Either the gospel's totally screwed up, and they just forgot to mention him. Or what happens is, Jesus' brother dismissed him early on as a lunatic, and then has this experience, and he is converted over, and he becomes the head of Jesus' movement. But truly, this is all speculation. Like, I'm just throwing stuff out there at you, because we don't know. We don't have any idea how the leadership actually functioned, or whether it even mattered. James may have been the de facto leader, but... As I told you, everybody was kind of out there doing their own thing. The church was not some well-oiled machine with a strict set of beliefs. From what we can tell, if there was any oversight, it was extraordinarily minimal. And what you will find as we get deeper and deeper into this series is that the further away you get from 30 AD, the more splintered Jesus' movement becomes. Because with every church that springs up, They come up with their own set of beliefs. In the early church, no two churches thought about Jesus in exactly the same way. Which brings me to my primary point of preaching this sermon today. Which is that the early church looked exactly like the church looks today. You walk around Arlington Heights, there is a church on every corner. That way is a church literally across the street from us. In all of these churches, they think about Jesus in slightly different ways. They have their own spins, and they have their own idea of what Jesus means. You can go to churches 
here in Arlington Heights, and sometimes those churches will tell you that Jesus wants you to be rich and wealthy and prosperous. And in other churches you go to, Jesus wants you to care for the poor and the needy. In some churches that you go to here in Arlington Heights, Jesus hates gay people, homosexuals. And in other churches you go to, Jesus is very concerned about gay rights. Sometimes you go to a church and you find out that Jesus is a flaming liberal who wants to overturn systems of injustice. And sometimes you go to church and you find out that Jesus is a staunch conservative who's trying to uphold traditional family values. Sometimes you go to church and you find out Jesus is black. And in other churches you go to, you find out Jesus was a Swedish guy with blonde hair and blue eyes. (laughs) In other words, it depends on where you go. And wherever you go, Jesus is going to be a reflection of the people sitting in the pews. So, when everybody believes that Jesus embodies their opinions and their values, is it ever possible for us to truly know the real Jesus? And if you want my honest opinion on that, I don't think we truly can. The closest we can get, in my opinion, to finding the real Jesus is through our willingness to admit that we are wrong. Now, I want to tell you that one more time. The willingness to admit we are wrong. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, if you want to find the real Jesus, you have to be willing to admit that your version of Jesus that you have in your mind is not 100% accurate. Because you hold some of the truth of who Jesus is, and so do the other people sitting around you. It's kind of like in a marriage or in some kind of relationship here with your significant other. I know that many of you, you don't see eye to eye with your significant other on every single issue, right? Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. You don't see eye to eye on every single issue. But that's a good thing. In fact, I know some of you are on totally opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to many of these issues. But the reason why that's good is because it's healthy. Because if you two just mirror each other, if you just say the same things, you're in this echo chamber and you're just constantly having your own beliefs reinforced. Whereas when you're with somebody who questions you, who thinks differently than you do, then they're going to question your assumptions and your biases. Now, I will tell you that I think that's a big reason why I'm here. That's part of my job is to help you question your assumptions and biases about Jesus. And I know some of you would disagree with that. You would say, no, that's not why you're here. Or some of you would say, yeah, I wish you'd do it a little less. Um, (laughs) But I really believe that's a big role that I play in being a pastor. And the reason why is because when you get thrown all this information that you don't know about, that you're not used to, it causes you to have to disassemble what you thought was true. And you have to rebuild it into something else. And I can tell you, my understanding of Jesus, it has been torn down and rebuilt several times in my walk as a Christian. And every time I come to this core of what do I really believe? What is my faith really all about? Because when you start throwing all these things away that were so important to you early on, and you say, okay, well, what's left? That's what real faith is about. That's what brings me closer to God. 
That's what allows me to feel that I have a relationship with God. And that's why I do that. It's important, in my opinion, to be willing to go through that process because when you get to the core of it, that's what matters. Now, you all know that I have a very particular and some would say peculiar way of thinking about Jesus. Is my way of thinking about Jesus based on my biases and my assumptions? Yes, 100% absolutely. Is my way of thinking about Jesus 100% correct? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, of course not. It's not correct at all. Like, I know that there are ways that I think about it that are probably wrong. I know the flaws in my own thinking even as I've gone through it. But that's okay, because I know that my way is not the only way. And that's where you all actually come into play. So, it's important that you all realize that you guys, you hold a little bit of truth about who Jesus is. And this truth that you hold, it's tough because it puts us in tension with each other, right? It puts us in tension because each of you in your hearts, you hold a little bit of the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. And so this is different than a lot of churches. It's different because the fact is, is that in a lot of churches, they expect a uniformity of belief, do they not? They expect you to believe exactly what everyone else believes. And if you don't, then you are deemed, what, a heretic, you're not part of the group. And you have seen this in churches where people will actually sit there and if they question, if they doubt, if they veer from the way that the group thinks about it, then they are literally told to leave the community. But that's not so in this place. In this place, no one person has the cornerstone on who Jesus is. No one person can claim that their version of Jesus is the correct version of Jesus, particularly me. Because the moment that someone claims that they have a cornerstone on who Jesus is, that is the same moment that I believe that Jesus exits the building. So it is the tension the tension of what we believe that actually holds the entire thing together. It's the tension that we all have a little bit of the truth that keeps us moving towards the truth of who Jesus actually is. And it is in this tension that we can all stand together and be one. Now, my hope for you today and my prayer for you Hopefully this thing stays together. <laughs> May not. <laughs> I'm going to finish my sermon quickly. <laughs> my prayer for you today is that you might go out and you might tell the people around you about this Jesus that you hold in your heart. I really hope that you will because it's important that other people know it. Don't just sit there and hold on to it and say, well, this is kind of what I think, and it doesn't matter. It does matter. It makes a huge difference in this church. And when you let people know about that version of Jesus you have in your heart, if the person next to you says, well, I don't quite see it that way, just remember, that is precisely what is holding our church together.
Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.